like a diary. They hide it, but actually they want someone to see it. That's what I do. Conceal and display, flip sides of the same coin. This way they know that someone's seen it. That's what it's all about. And welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm Jake Harris. And tonight we are going to be talking all about Christopher Nolan's first feature film, Following. Or as I like to call it, the first times a character named Kyle actually incepted someone. Yeah, that is. I I watched this tonight with uh, Taylor and we both were like, how many times has he used Cobb? That's a feature of his right now yeah um yeah but uh what uh, have you been seeing in the news related to our good buddy christopher nolan the only thing i've seen since we last talked was the instagram post that you shared from the washington post and since you shared that i'll let you go ahead and uh, talk about what it was about yeah so they showed a chart of movies that were the most often assigned movies in film classes at colleges and universities across America. Uh, and let me pull that up here on the Instagram archives. Uh, and that list uh, leading the syllabus appearances, we've got man with a movie camera, do the right thing, citizen Kane, all a bunch of uh, bunch more white people. Then you've also got birth of a nation, which is you just no, no, stop assigning that to syllabus. You don't need to see that. <laughs> uh, if you want to seek it out, fine. You, there's other ways to show what that movie is, like the camera work or whatever, if you want to make an excuse for it. But the point to all this is that Memento showed up on this list. It is the, it shows up near the bottom of how many syllabus appearances it has made of the self-selection of people that submitted syllabuses to this study. Uh, it is on 463 film syllabus Hooray. appearances coming in right above, or no, it's tied with rear window. So he's in good company with uh, Hitchcock. Perfect. Um, <laughs> the other thing about that article is that it highlights just how much film syllabi uh, focus on white dude directors. And it's also like all the same movies, right? Like I took, I don't know how many film classes, at TCU and I saw Citizen Kane, I want to say four times, all for class credit. <laughs> uh, so it right. kind of got old by the by then there. No one assigned me Memento though, but he is in good company with that. And we will probably talk more about how that has influenced a lot of people and I guess film professors on our next episode when we talk more about Memento and the influences leading up to that. But that is all we've got. Have anything else? No, just that all I saw, yeah, was the Instagram post I wasn't able to read the whole article, but I started scanning the list and I was like, Is it, am I going to see one here? And Memento showed up and I did a little fist pump. So hooray. <laughs> but I did notice that it showed the most assigned films and also on the second slide of the post, the most assigned directors. And he didn't make the list of most assigned directors, which I have nothing else to say about that, except that he wasn't on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so just uh, for clarity's transparency's sake but i was glad to see memento get on there because i think i mean i, I think it's one of his best and i was really happy to see it there and i've talked more about memento once we get there but yeah but yeah but other than that moving forward what are some things you've either been reading or watching jake since last time 
so I actually just finished this book today. Uh, it is Celeste Ng's latest. Uh, it's called Our Missing Hearts. And that by the time this comes out, it'll already be out. I think it comes out on October 4th uh, and there will be a review that I'm going to have forthcoming. I do some freelance work for a website called Book and Film Grove where I get to write movie reviews and book reviews. Uh, so I'm going to be having a review over there here pretty soon this week. But this book is about a it's not quite dystopian but it kind of is future of what america probably could look like if you know you turn the dial just a tiny little bit basically there has been a global crisis that has happened that people then uh, were looking for someone to blame so they blamed asian populations because during this crisis the gdp of china and other east asian countries grew while america's didn't and so then that leads to a bunch of xenophobia and nationalism and people trying to remove Asian kids from families and then removing kids from families if they thought that their parents were unpatriotic or insufficiently like anti-Asian. And so that is the basis for the world that these people live in. But all of that is the backdrop to a family story about why this one kid's mom left the family. And it's kind of told in a almost like Gone Girl style where the first half is told from the kid's point of view and then the other half is told from his mom's point of view. So you get two perspectives on the same events. And it sounds like it's kind of like a speculative fiction sci-fi thing, but all of that is just the set dressing essentially for a really, really great family drama story that is essentially about how words and stories and our versions of events and the ways that we pass them on either orally or written down can shape people and shape the way we think about other people. And it's just really fascinating. A lot of really great prose. And if you've read her last book, Little Fires Everywhere, you already know that, but that is a really, really great book. Highly recommend it. I will probably have a review coming again this week, going more in depth with it. But yeah, that's been the thing that I've been reading the most this week probably one of the best things i've read all year really very good very good yeah i can't imagine america lashing out at an asian population during a time of global turmoil that's totally no, not not at all and i was re reading the author's note and she touched on that a lot because it was a i got an advanced reader's copy so i didn't really know a whole whole lot about what it was about i just knew that she was an author that i liked and the way that she weaves in all of the events that lead up to this event, I was like, did I just like miss a part of American history, like around McCarthyism or something? And I just am totally ignorant to this. Like, that's how real that it seems, because it's it's a fake congressional act and it's a fake group of people that lead this cause. But it all sounds very real, especially after everything that happened in the last two and a half years. So, right, right very good yeah right well that that will serve that segment for us because i don't have anything really that i'm reading or watching outside <laughs> of our nolan efforts here uh just all nolan all the time yeah that's uh with just with <laughs> life and everything that's going on with me that's the only thing i've had time to make time for so i think we're just gonna go right into it now that sounds good to me so what are we talking about today jake uh, we are talking about Following, which, as I said, was uh, Christopher Nolan's first feature film. 
that he did. This follows on the heels of Doodlebug, the three-minute short that we followed or that we followed <laughs> that we talked about last episode. And the IMDb synopsis is very short, which is fitting because this movie is only about 68, 69 minutes. Very nice. And the the summary says. A young writer who follows strangers for material meets a thief who takes him under his wing. Um, and I know there's a lot more on that and there's a lot more uh, people to identify for this. So if you want to take away the cast and crew and go into the little nuts and bolts of the plotting there. Sure. I'll give that a shot. Uh, so following was released in 1998, directed by Christopher Nolan. And he also did it, took his hand at doing the cinematography, the editing, and of course, writing the screenplay and it's starring his old pals from University College London, Jeremy Theobald, Alex Hall and Lucy Russell shot black and white on 16 millimeter film for basically like no budget to no budget film and mm-hmm. shot over about the course of a year on weekends and at various locations like his own flat at uh, his parents place, anywhere we could get a friend's restaurant and basically doing what what he could to get this thing done and get it done cheaply or like for literal dirt so um a because they were yeah they were all working full-time when they made this yeah yeah including you know nolan was working uh for a tv station or something like that if i remember correctly from the book but to expand a little bit on that synopsis a young writer kind of a uh as he's described by Alex Haw's character uh, named Cobb in the movie, he's a sad fucker with no social life. And there's not <laughs> much of a better <laughs> s- summation of that. Um, yeah. He's a kind of a pathetic guy a bit. <laughs> so what this young writer does, he just follows people around trying to get inspiration for material. He's not necessarily a writer. He's an aspiring writer, really. And one day he follows this guy in a dark suit into a cafe this guy's carrying a bag and this guy notices he's following him and it turns out this guy is a burglar a thief and the young man as he's referred to in the script and like officially in the credits ends up joining this guy learning how to burglarize places and they do that and they burglarize the apartment of a blonde woman who's kind of like a model. There's pictures of her all over the place. And then the the young man breaks one of his rules of following because he has rules. And then he goes and revisits this woman's place and meets her, makes her acquaintance, and then starts kind of dating her. He hooks up and finds out a little bit about her life. And she's the ex of some gangster type guy who apparently is holding some blackmail over her. And he says, well, you know, I know how to break into things and get things. I'll, I'll steal these photos that he has of you, supposedly. And this kind of gets him involved in like a, it spirals downward. And he, you know, moves from petty larceny to when he breaks in, he, to get these photos, he takes a hammer to a guy who catches him. And then eventually it turns out that Cobb, the guy who teaches him how to burglarize things, it's, it's all been a setup. <laughs> to be for him to be a fall guy for Cobb, who is suspected is a suspect in a murder. He just broke into a place one day and there was an old lady murdered. 
So he didn't have anything to do with that. And it's revealed that he is in cahoots with the blonde woman who the young man starts seeing. And they've gotten together to make him take the fall for this. But then, but then, it really turns out that the cop is double-crossed. twist. Yeah. Cobb has double-crossed both of them because mm-hmm. the blonde woman actually has some knowledge about this murder the gangster committed. And she has proof of it. She It happened in her apartment on the carpet. So she still has this carpet. So Cobb is actually working for this gangster to take out both of them. And so it ends up with the young man taking the fall right on, on the cusp of taking the fall for these burglaries and for the attack on, on the henchman and the murder of the blonde. So really, really tightly airtight kind of plot. Everything just really clicks into place at the end. And it's really, really, really quite fascinating to watch and really interesting to see not only just how Nolan made this, this no budget film, but you know, how he made everything fit and made everything work and how you can see how it influenced a lot of his uh, work going forward and probably most especially Memento since that's the film that followed this. So let's talk about what we thought of it. First of all, how'd you watch it, Jake? Um, I watched this, uh, it's on the Criterion channel. And so that's how I watched it. They also have a really good uh, Blu-ray version of that as well. Um, but if you don't have any of those and you don't want to pay for a subscription, I just found out it's also available on Tubi, which this is not an ad, but it's a really great ad-supported streaming service where uh, there is they have a really good selection of a lot of stuff and hard-to-find stuff too, like things that I wouldn't have thought of to look for elsewhere. And it's a pretty good chance that if you're looking for something obscure, they will probably have it. But... This was the second time that I've seen this. Uh, the first time that I watched it was, I think, three or four years ago. Um, I checked out the DVD from the library. And that had at the time, that was the only Nolan film that I hadn't seen. So I wanted to go back and look at where he got started. And at the time, I liked it a lot more, I guess, just after I'd seen everything else multiple times and then came back to it. I still think it's good, but it it wasn't as great as I thought it was at the first time. It kind of left me not cold, but I almost think that you could have told the same story without the editing gimmick and you still would have achieved the same result. It just would have been different emotions the whole time. You would have been thinking, oh, well, what's going on? Like, why did it just cut to someone with a bloody nose on a roof or why did it just cut to this person? But if you told it in a more straightforward fashion, you would still get all of the ins and outs and the twists and turns of the story. It would just be more of a a dramatic um what am I trying to say? Dramatic irony. Uh, just just yeah, just dramatic irony, and it would be more of a tragic figure story of just watching this guy descend deeper and deeper into something that he can't get back out of, which is I guess then just straight up noir. But yeah. I mean, I liked it, but that's just how, what I came away with it this time. Sure. But what sure. do you think? Sure. I, well, first of all, I think it's interesting how you mentioned that you thought it would work just as well if it was just told chronologically, because that's apparently how uh, Nolan wrote the script, but he wanted to do the nonlinearity. So he chopped it up and rearranged it to how it actually ended up being. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I just find that comment interesting. So, um, 
I think I do agree with you a bit there and slightly disagree. Um, maybe the only disagree would be on the point of I do like how the nonlinearity allows him to edit it together. And, you know, just anytime he switches the timelines, the thing that orients you every time is or most of the time is the appearance of the young man because it starts and out the clothes. Yeah, the clothes and everything because he starts out being unkempt and you know, greasy haired and unshaven and with, with, you know, like ratty clothes. And then after meeting Cobb, he eventually adopts the same look, you know, as part of, as part of the right. long con, you know, he's wearing a, a suit, got some, some shorter hair, clean shaven. And then at some point Cobb beats him up because the young man tells him that he went back and is now like seeing the blonde, the, the person's place that they, that they burglarized. So there's that timeline where he looks beaten up. So usually when you were jumping around the timelines, immediately the first thing that orients you is the appearance of the young man. And I know it's not, you know, the he's not the first person to ever think of this, but it's done simply, it's done elegantly. You know, it's not, yeah. it doesn't and belabor the, the point and it does what it needs to do. Yeah, and the editing is jarring at first. Like that first smash cut that you experience is really disorienting. But then right. going forward, you might not know at what point on each timeline you're watching, but you definitely know which timeline you're watching just based off of set dressing and costume and his appearance. I, yeah, I agree with you on that one. Yeah, yeah. So once you go through each of the different parts of the timeline, finally you know where you are and then it's relatively simple to follow. Right. Again, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I watched this on the Blu-ray, the Criterion collection nice. blu-ray and look great uh, was that and how many times have you seen it before just once right uh no this was my third viewing i think uh oh, nice. let's see watched it first time about 10 or so years ago watched it again on my my last nolan watch through in 2020 and now here but talking about the look of it actually allows us i think to discuss like the no budget of it all uh and uh, it's yeah, something yeah. you definitely see like through the whole thing you can see the grain of the film it's really gritty and you feel the texture and it's very much yeah an experiment uh as nolan talks about in the nolan variations he says he's experimenting with 16 millimeter films and trying to figure out like what can i do with no resources and he also talks about how no budget films feel and the tone to them the the like alien type just disorienting because that you're working on on such a cheap budget it almost doesn't look real yeah he calls it an eerie quality and yeah, yeah yeah and he says how do you not fight that because when you have no budget like there's things that are going to attendant to the process of the production that are going to put themselves in there anyway so like following the aesthetic and i mean he definitely does that it uses like all this natural light it's you know black and white shot on the cheapest thing he can find he's pulled all his friends together <laughs> essentially yeah. to make this but i like how he says he embraced it and leaned into it because at this point what else would you do you know he he's just got a, a job that doesn't pay very well but he's got this film he wants to make you know and the locations he used and I said in some of my notes, you can even make a little like a leap and stretch to apply Cobb's most famous quote from the film, like about leaving things or doing things when you're burglarizing that make people realize, try to think about their lives. He says, you take it away to show them what they have. And if you take 
the amount of resources you're able to use a way that can maybe spring some creativity from scarcity and yeah, it's a bit of a yeah. puzzle and that's something you know a, a problem to solve and no one's already kind of primed for that and that's definitely something i feel like he carried forward into his you know his big famous director career because uh in the nolan variations he also mentions how he tries to work within hollywood to keep people off of his back he says i work i try to work under budget and i try to work ahead of schedule and that allows me to do what i need to do and no one has to worry about me and i can do whatever i want or as much as i want so um you know i'm sure a lot of other filmmakers you, you know go through this starting out because i mean it's not cheap to make films but in a nolan specific context that experience here definitely was something that was formative and influential on him going forward yeah and i think the low budget kind of just hard scrabble let's shove all the cast and crew and the materials in a cab and shoot on the weekends thing i think that also just that plus the subject matter of this movie also adds to that eerie quality they were talking about earlier because really who would this happen to in real life you know like this is such a crazy turn of events for some just from a baseline perspective there's some guy like hey i'm gonna follow people and then it just happens to be someone who makes him for a mark and gets him involved in this thing so it's got to be something that is already kind of out there so that you end up caring a lot about where is this going and what's actually going to be happening instead of everything else like you're not distracted but like you're so involved with the plot mechanics of everything and the kind of weird eerie why is this guy following him who's following who and then you got that plus the disorientation of the score popping up every time they break into someone's house yeah i think all of that combines for for like a really interesting experience that i don't think he really has ever replicated going forward you can just like really tell that he's putting everything he's got in this and if this fails then that's not really an option but if it succeeds then great we're gonna keep making more movie you can i don't know you can tell that this was him throwing everything in the kitchen sink at it yeah yeah he's got I me mean, he's, he's got all the things that we know and love or hate about chris Nolan. he's got the the non-linear plot you've got a character named Cobb. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, t- two movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've got the very, the dark psychological crime thriller of it. You've got a female character who's not treated very well. Although in this case, it's. I mean, it's if it's a neo noir, that's like if you're going straight to holding to every trope of the genre. That's unfortunately kind of part of it. But that's a discussion for another time. But yeah, and then the uh, the score, the score of the music, it's, uh, you know, a synthesizer score, quite minimal, very much in line with a lot of the stuff he listened to when he was young. And, and the score yeah, just has yeah. influenced him, which also... And it also sounds a lot like some of the future scores that he would have for his movies, especially with Batman and Inception, even though David Julian didn't do those at all. He definitely has a a style and a taste that he wants his composers to stick to. Right. And for this one, apparently he told David Julian nine inch nails meets John Barry. (laughs) Sounds about right. Now that you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, especially the opening, the beginning. I also was weirdly reminded of uh, 
the track, I think it's called Confessions at the end, uh, with the strings and the synthesizer and stuff, reminds me of the Born Identity score, which that movie came out like five years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe this was formative for John Powell. Who knows? I don't even know if he listened to this, but the opening track for that movie where they find Matt Damon in the water sounds a lot like that. And so that just was my first reminder, but it's also like suspenseful, but also mournful. I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting balance. Yeah. Yeah. Like those, the two primary themes are themes. There's that screech of when they're breaking mm-hmm. into places. It's like a really doodle bug a lot. That screech. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also kind of a ticking to it. So, you know, mm-hmm. put another check mark in the box of time and the reminder of that kind of like you feel the pressure of of the burglary and things are running out and you got to get done then there's the other thing that's yeah it's pretty melancholy like a piano bit carries a little bit of the tragedy of what the story is as a score it like it doesn't do more than it needs to do it does just fine as it's very short yeah like to paired with the film listing it as a standalone not that this matters necessarily in terms of the film it kind of doesn't move me too much it's not maybe the most listenable thing but to be fair when i actively listened to it for this um i found a bit more and enjoyed it a little bit more than i have in the past when maybe i've been a little bit more passive in the listening um but definitely it carries i feel like it carries that eeriness of like a no budget film that no one talked about because it's mainly like synth which isn't necessarily a sign of cheapness but it kind of sounds like a cheaper synth not something you could have with a bigger budget studio so yeah the score uh score fits and it's consistent with other things we know you can also see a lot of his other uh, earlier works and influences whether it's doodlebug with the same actor and then the same kind of the same theme of who's following who is this man following this man or is that just all a setup for an even bigger man to follow you and to crush you um right there's also some uh there's a shining reference uh there's some wallpaper that has jack nicholson from the shining in there so that's the kubrick element of it there's a batman Um, sticker on the door yes there's a batman sticker on the (laughs) The door yeah the beginning scene where Cobb and the young man first meet he mentions a bag under the table, which reminds me of Hitchcock's quote about the bomb going off under the table to create suspense. Right, right. And there's also, there's that, but then there's also like foreshadowing for a lot of the elements that he would later put in his movies. There's definitely a lot of the Joker and Ra's al Ghul and Harvey Dent in Cobb, I think, especially with his curbside philosophizing about why he breaks into people's houses and what to do uh how to read people and what his role in it is especially the take it away and then you show them what they had uh the other quote that stuck out to me was concealment and display it's flip sides of the same coin that is a quote that could easily come from i mean obviously harvey dent with the coin but i can hear the joker saying that i could also hear razal ghoul saying that or i'm trying to think of another villain from later ones maybe someone from inception who know you know it's all kind of the same same thing there from people and then yeah yeah what i picked up on cob with yeah the dumping out of the shoe box and talking about everyone has their mm-hmm. box that they hide things in but really it's like a diary they want people to see it it reminded me of 
in the dark night when the Joker is in the interrogation room after Batman's run off to try and save uh, Rachel. And there's Gordon's like second in command guy. And the Joker's telling him about, do you know why you use a knife? It's because people tell you who they really are in their final moments. So drawing a yeah, parallel between yeah. the concept of a stranger finding a way to know everything about you almost instantaneously. It's really unsettling. And it gnaws at the notion of each of us having a feeling like we're each unique, possibly like, you know, our own identity or an individual. But how unique can we really be if everything about us can be kind of distilled and categorized so quickly and so rapidly by someone who starts out like knowing nothing about us? So that idea definitely I saw saw as well. I saw those things, too. Yeah. And then there's also some some out of the past connections, uh, whether it's just the the breaking into the safe to get some documents plot or just the noir as a whole. Cause this really is, it's, it's more, but most of it's in the daytime. So it's taking the thematic elements and the tonal shifts of noir, not necessarily the lighting and the nighttime settings, but it's taking the everything else from it and setting into the daytime for that. But there's also the whole notion of the blonde woman that, that takes you down, but that's, also, just he doesn't have a great track record with women in his movie. He literally named a woman Mall in Inception, <laughs> like right. <laughs> um, and most of the problems that they have, I mean, I don't know. Interstellar gets kind of redeemed for it. I was going to say Murph is like the huge exception. Yeah, Murph, Murph is the one exception, and I. It has been probably 10 to 12 years since I've seen Insomnia. So the rewatch I do of that will be pretty much like watching it again for the first time. I have zero recollection of what Hillary Swank's character is like in that one. But everything else, the woman is either getting fridged or she was dead to begin with, or the main character actually killed them. Or just it's, I, I don't know what to, I would love to be a fly on the wall with his conversations with Emma about what. <laughs> Yeah, because he did talk about in the book about how Emma Thomas kind of was able to help him with the female characters. And I think that was in the context, if I remember rightly, possibly around the chapter where they were on the prestige. And uh, he was. Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, he was talking yeah, about example. the illusionist came out the same year and audience, some audiences apparently liked the illusionist better. And whereas he overheard somebody asking. I don't know if it was someone was talking about the illusionist and was overheard the masking. You know, why did in the prestige, why did the Rebecca Hall's character have to die? And he gives his explanation on why that would be. And basically, you know, this character having to deal with two different versions of Borden, like psychologically, what would that do to somebody? And he says, I think his argument is in that day and age, the only option out would be suicide. And that's how he justifies that choice and mm -hmm. I, yeah, I can't remember if you said he ran that by emma but yeah that, that was like a little bit of a pulling the curtain back and maybe him giving an explanation an explanation in that context I, I mean when i read it i think i think i went along with the explanation i think it made sense especially when you do consider how how little of <laughs> choice that married women had back in that time of things they could do but yeah no definitely right I don't know if we'll be banging this drum or going back to this every single time for every single film, but it is, I think, important to acknowledge at the start that we're definitely not blind to that. Us two 
straight white guys. Uh, <laughs> we're not blind to the fact of how women are are typically characterized and and shown in, in um, Nolan films. I'm sure we'll we'll talk more about that with Memento too. Right, that is a key plot point of that movie. Yeah, but no. So the how did we get out of the past? That's what it was. Uh, so we that whole aspect of it, but also it's just like in Tenet where she doesn't even have a name. She's just the blonde woman, but the protagonist doesn't really have a name either. He says his name is Bill in following, but then in the credits, it's only the young man. Right. So who knows if he even gave his real name to Cobb or not, but well, in the screen, um, screenplay it, uh, anytime it Cobb says, says it, man. he always has quotes around it. So yeah. you can tell Cobb doesn't buy that. Yeah. He's, he's all very, very astute. And that scene to speaking of the screenplay, the scene where he sizes up the young man's house where the young man wants to kind of get Cobb's read on him as a person since he's been helping him break into all these houses and he sees how easily he sizes up everyone's houses that they go into. And so he's like, I'm going to say that we can go rob this house and then I'll get a feel for what he thinks yeah, about Cobb, me. And Cobb gives the assignment just, of saying, hey, you pick the place then. Yeah. And he picks it. The young man picks his own he place. Picks, he picks his own place and he goes in there and he's just like trashing all of the stuff that he has, insulting his music taste, calling him a bum, a low level unemployed wannabe writer. And the young man is just protesting, saying like, well, no, he's he's a banker. He probably has a good job. And cops like nah like look at this he, he my favorite little flourish from that was no he he's a writer he has a typewriter if he was a real writer he'd have a word processor this right. guy wants to be a writer yeah but the way that that's written on the page and the way that it's also that every piece of dialogue is written even when the young man stammers or starts and stops whenever he speaks Given that this is a, an indie film that was shot on the street with 16 millimeter on weekends with a very kind of guerrilla style to it, you would think that a lot of that would be improv, but it's so well, even in the script, it's written with those stutters and stops in place because they had to practice so many times to get it right because they only had limited daylight and limited film stock to make it work. So I thought it was interesting that reading that on the page and then watching it play out, I was amazed. I mean, I shouldn't be just because this is Nolan. That's how he does stuff, but right, right. amazed at how technical and precise everything was because there's not a lot of the only thing that they had any improv or room for improv on in the script was blocking and stage direction really, because they had to accommodate where they moved and what they did to the lighting and to the environment that they were in each day. But the actual plot movements and plot blocking and the actual dialogue that they did was like so well thought out and practiced that it had to be right. And just watching that transition from page to screen was really satisfying. And I really liked that scene. That one in the opening burglary, I think, are my two favorite scenes of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And on the script, um, while I was reading it, I thought of one of the things Nolan said the very first things he said about screenwriting in the Nolan variations. He said the relationship between a written screenplay and a finished film is very inadequate. I enjoy mm -hmm. writing screenplays because they are very stripped down, simple documents. And the more stripped down they are, the better they are. 
the less literary they are, the more they approximate the direct experience of what's going to happen on screen. And this one definitely adheres to that because outside of the dialogue, he just very briefly and succinctly tells what's going on. You know, this person does this, they walk here to do this, then they do this thing. Um, there, right. There's actually quite a lot of descriptive things in the script because it's a little bit like Dunkirk, what we've what we read about the script of Dunkirk being only 70 something pages. There's a lot yeah. of yeah, there's a lot of telling in this. What, like it's a 69 minute movie, but the script is like maybe it's like 80 like something pages, pages yeah. with a title and intro sheet and everything. So it pretty much follows the page a minute rule almost to a T. Right, right. There's also a lot of direction on. I like that there's a lot of attention paid to exactly how and where the smash cuts are going to happen. And yeah. A lot of attention to the different timelines there too. Yeah. I read the script after I did my most recent viewing and all the cuts were exactly where I remember them to be. And like you said, it just goes to that attention to detail and everything. And I mean, also I think with the script we were able to read, I don't know how many what draft it was but presumably they released the shooting draft for the most recent one right yeah, um, yeah, yeah but even then you know sometimes things can change between when that is written and and when things get produced but for this get yeah given the context of everything and how it was made it makes sense that everything's pretty much there as it was written uh so what are some other areas of this that we have not discussed yet Mine uh, ties into the Nolan variations and the concept of finding deeper meaning in his movies. I know we've talked a lot about in the last couple episodes, right? How he always tries to distance himself and his personal, whether his personal life or just his personal views on anything, to distance them from the content of the actual movie itself, but. Watching this, I also couldn't help but think that he think I don't know if he thinks that he's Cobb or if he thinks that this is the two sides of him that I mentioned a couple episodes ago where he was talking about his dual citizenship and his um, the weirdness that he felt and the, the displacement that he felt as a Brit living in America. Right. But it's not a fair... And Tom Schoen makes this case in the book too that it's not a hard jump to go from that experience once you hear about it from him growing up to that this is two versions of the same man this is both of these people are nolan just the young man is the younger scrappier american nolan trying to make it in hollywood or make it in the film industry and cobb is almost the person that he was trying to distance himself from like, am I a snooty British person when I'm in America? <laughs> am I, do I, am I like a little bit too privileged to do it? What am I doing with that? And so you could read that into it if you wanted to, or you could just look at it again, like most of his films as a good genre exercise uh, with yeah. some good editing and a great twist ending at the end. Yeah. Um, but it's also, on that note, too, on the feeling of being displaced, Sean made the good point in the book about how following is just, it's all about loneliness in the middle of the crowd. Those opening and closing shots are both, they take on different meanings because it's told from the different point of view of different characters, but it's all about just seeing all these people around you and still feeling lonely. 
Right, right. And to jump back just a, a tiny bit, I thought it's, I think it's funny that you brought up the, uh, again, the dual identity thing, because I actually wrote in my notes, I was like, question for Jake, what do you think about that? <laughs> what they said about that? And it also gets blurred too, right? Where he, before you realize that Cobb is just asking the young man to change his haircut and change his appearance and his clothing style, you think that's just him trying to teach him like oh like you need to take yourself seriously get a haircut shave your beard stop looking like a bum i think the line is what just because we burglarize houses doesn't mean you have to look like a burglar right yeah uh and then he does it he follows his advice and the whole time you're thinking is he doing this because he some deep recessed part of him wants to be Cobb, or does he does he like the power that comes with that does he like the confidence that comes with the suit and the haircut and everything uh, yeah. And so the line gets blurred on he like he starts to look like him and take on his appearance a little bit more. And then later you realize that that was all a part of the long con to get him to be the patsy for a murder. But the more you watch it and then just that, especially once the narratives continue to get jumbled and then he starts to look a lot more like Cobb, the line does get blurred on is this two halves of the same coin, so to speak, like you mentioned earlier? Yeah. Are these two different people? Is this the two people that you could access in your own personalities? It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Actually, as I watched the, you know, the, the conclusion of the film on my viewing, I had the, a little bit of a harebrained thought that, you know, this is, could be a thing where someone's trying to read too much into it, but it falls apart pretty quickly. But I thought, why, what if, you know, this guy, what if the young man actually like was also Cobb, you know, a la Fight Club? Because you could just say, oh, well, like maybe this was just an alter ego of like who he wish he could be. And then he ended up doing all these things and then he got caught and now he's kind of done it to himself. But the film like disproves that easily because, you know, Cobb is shown totally separately yeah. talking to the blonde. But it's a it's a nice like thought exercise to maybe think of that that you could kind of put in there and also categorize under trying to think about it too much just uh cigar just being a cigar and all that so right. uh and even though this yeah. movie did this movie predated fight club by a year yes but the fight club book had been out for a little bit beforehand so i don't know if he ever read fight club the book but the bit where he's explaining him where Cobb is explaining to the young man the rules about breaking into people's houses and what he does and doesn't do and the deception is two sides of the same coin and we take things away from people to show them what they have that all reminded me of the tyler durden the rules of fight club but then also the like how do you know if you're a man if you've never been in a fight all you're doing is you know looking at a copy of a copy of a copy and you just you're reduced to buying stuff from ikea catalogs that's not what you should that's not what we were made for all that stuff yeah um, yeah that could have just been what was in the zeitgeist at the time pre Y2K. But yeah. And like with the matrix too, you know, what, what is reality and like, what are you, what is your exactly. life like? And with being, you know, Neo, Mr. Anderson, just working in a cubicle farm and you know, Morpheus yeah, shows yeah. him like, actually there's more to this and you could actually be the, the whole savior of humanity. So don't know if that's a connection that he made at all, but the thought was there when I saw that, especially when you when you do start to wonder if they're the same person or not. Sure, yeah, yeah. So I'm looking through my notes. I have I have a couple more things. Maybe something we haven't talked oh, about God. yet is 
a notion of something that Nolan brings up in the Nolan variations where he's talking about like everything's about the point of view of the character you know like Mm -hmm. where you put the camera and he gives the example or is talking about in Psycho how after Marion is murdered after the shower scene you see Norman Bates having to clean it up and how it's displayed you feel sorry for Bates and how he has to like how he's put in this situation and how you're sympathetic like you're to almost sympathetic to him yeah yeah and then when he's hiding her body and puts it in the trunk of the car and dumps that into the swamp and like i said last episode i watched psycho for the first time in august and i remember watching that scene and i was like oh i hope it disappears or else he's in trouble and realizing oh my god uh, yeah this is what he's done he's turned it hitchcock has turned it and i'm hoping that this guy gets away with murder and then Nolan talked about how he kind of did that in following. He says, uh, like the writer, the young man, he's a guilty innocent. He's doing something that's, you know, he's doing a bad thing. He's burglarizing, but it's nothing to what like's really going on. The deep crime world stuff he gets involved in. But I kind of agree on that. Like you are a complicit voyeur, so to speak. And then once as when you're watching a film, like, when you're oriented to that point of view, you do find yourself rooting for people to do bad things. I mean, maybe the one of the best examples of this in all of like media is like Breaking Bad. You go on that journey with Walter mm-hmm. White and you're like, I hope he never gets caught. Oh, Hank's getting close. <laughs> but oh my, like, you know, the when when Hank finds the book, the middle season five finale, you're like, oh, shit, oh, man. <laughs> but just that point of when you're given a certain point of view especially in film and TV what with what the camera shows you who you're hanging out with sometimes you end up hoping for things to happen that maybe outside of that you wouldn't normally hope would happen and he does that too a lot with some other films as well right the biggest example i can think of is the joker where you know this is the big bad of the movie. This is the main antagonist. This is not someone you should be rooting for, but right. whether through camera placement or editing or just the sheer force of will of Heath Ledger right. in that performance, there are moments where you're watching it where you're like, oh man, what if he gets away with it? Like, what does that mean? Like, that's kind of, you know, like, please let that hospital blow up. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, and then you, and then immediately you're like, well, especially the the opening bank robbery sequence too. You're like, oh wow, that went off without a hitch. That was amazing. Look, look, at what they, and then you're like, I just cheered for him, killing people and stealing money and causing mayhem. Why? What does that say about right? Him? Right. Yeah, definitely. You know, if you really think about it, you're like, oh yeah. Well, it leads to a little bit of self reflection, or it does kind of put the mirror up to yourself and make you think about things. And that's, I mean, that's kind of one thing that film and cinema and media just overall you know books and stuff like that are useful for it allows us to explore those ideas of those concepts kind of safely video games too uh without actually <laughs> without well it's true you know it's, they, oh, no, they don't, yeah, yeah, they don't, yeah, they don't cause sense. they don't cause crime they they're actually a, a catharsis um yeah it allows people to explore things like that in a safe way quote unquote safe way without actually doing all those things. So yeah, that's uh, definitely a great point. I guess I just want to say before we wrap it up, I I just, in terms of the story and how it's laid out, maybe with not necessarily like strictly the noir of it all, but um, Tom Schoen mentions 
in the book that uh, he says the film traces a perfect circle of self-incrimination, talking about how eventually, you know, how everything's done. Cobb has played the young man to just absolute pitch perfect um, and that he's just handed himself in. So within the book that touches on Shone's description of kind of noir plots being a bit circular, whether like, right, like yeah. the client did it, the person who hires the detective did it or someone in their same family did it like Raymond Chandler. But in this case, yeah. it's, I feel like it's just so sneakily and so well done. Like it's just little breadcrumbs throughout where say the young man calls Cobb and is like, Hey, I need protection, like a weapon. And Cobb throws out a few suggestions, the including hammer. the hammer, which is what mm-hmm. is what does him in. But and then like dropping the hints about the appearance change, like they got walked in on on their first break in together. But it's with a woman who's coming home with somebody who's not her boyfriend. So they're kind of safe. But then they see that lady in a restaurant later and the young man freaks out and cops like, well, then why don't you just change your appearance if you're so worried and just plays him again. So. Uh, like I mentioned at the very, very start of this, I was like, this is the first time actually that a character named God does an inception on someone. This is the original time. Mm-hmm. He perfectly executes He's his planting plan. planting all those ideas and yeah. Yeah. Planting them and making them just think that they were all the young man's ideas. Just willingly doing all the things that eventually are what brings him down. And the credit card, he's like, here, sign this. Um, yeah, you, you do that yeah. so you can have the, I thought you could have the pleasure of paying for this meal. Right? You know, quote unquote, paying for it. And it links perfectly well to Nolan's comments on Raymond Chandler about like the switchbacks and double crosses being right there out in the open. Yeah, Cobb's doing all this right to the young man's face. And eventually that's that's exactly what screws him over. Yeah, there's a lot of Chandler, a lot of the big sleep with the plotting in this one, too. Uh, now that I was thinking, I was like, what am I missing for influences? Definitely Chandler. Definitely the big sleep. I guess the other, the biggest thing that my takeaway is from this uh, before we wrap up is I don't think, and I'll, when we watch Memento, I will maybe change my mind. I think this is the nastiest he gets with movies uh just with the sheer like the voyeurism and the concept that you are not safe in your own house you're safe your house is not safe from stuff like this right uh no matter what you think and then no matter how secret you think you are it's always just a couple bad things away from someone looking at your stuff right I mean, just looking at your stuff and like yeah. analyzing you down to your core like we're not all that different but the fear of being known and the fear of having someone do that so quickly and in such a way that violates your personal space like the opening shot for some reason and i don't know why it did this to me but i was like why am i creeped out by just a man putting on gloves and it's the way that he's like attacking his hands into the gloves and the way that it's shot and the way that it that combined with the score and everything it just immediately sets you on edge for something and right. just the it's a great uh october watch it's a horror movie about <laughs> losing your sense of personal security and stability right i mean that was the whole inspiration for the plot for christopher nolan he uh mm-hmm. he got his, the, the his apartment broken into and in the book he talks about how that kind of just opened his eyes to how like this this lock you you go in your house you click it and you feel secure but it's 
not really. It's not real. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it's all it's just this thin little thing that if somebody wanted to come and kick your door. It's it then it's it's done. So um, we have yeah. we have a a very thin social contract that says we're not going to do that. But then, yeah, when that contract's broken, you realize how vulnerable you really are. Yeah, exactly. So let's see. I think the only other thing I would have to say is, uh, yeah, definitely not necessarily a perfect film. I think it's definitely a solid first effort and something like that for someone who goes on to be a really renowned director. It's not always guaranteed because I I also recently watched Kubrick's uh, directorial feature debut, Fear and Desire, and uh, it it's not great. (laughs) <laughs> let's put it that way um, i still have yet to see that one so it is it's a war film about a, a plane crew gets stranded behind enemy lines and they're trying to find their way out and they they run across uh, a, a girl who is a member of the country they're fighting and they take her prisoner and it just gets kind of weird and you can t- kind of tell it's like it's very you can tell the kubrick is there you know, especially right. with, the, with the editing, but it just some of the writing is just really clunky and the performances are not that good. And it says what it tries to say about, like, you know, the horror of war and how, how it affects people differently and, and what it can do to you. And yeah, it's uh, oof, it's a bit of a rough ride. But yeah, so contrasting that, say, you know, with what Nolan does here. And also Kubrick's debut was shot on a shoestring budget as well. So with what you can do with limited funds, you know, sometimes with your vision and everything, it doesn't always fall into place. But here things couldn't really have gone much better for Christopher Nolan. Like he had that good luck with the print, as I mentioned, I think, in the in the first episode for us. And I would say the performances here are pretty solid. Maybe, you know, some people don't think they're all too great, but I mean they there wasn't anything too distracting for me to pull me out of what they were doing and the story is pretty darn airtight how he how he pulls everything together so it's a great debut and i think it's a it's a great entry into an a great entrance into the filmography and and what we're doing here so Agreed. And that uh, filmography is going to continue next week uh, when we talk about all of the influences on Memento. And we will be looking at some short stories, looking at some other movies and all that. So be sure to come back for that. And then we will have our Memento discussion shortly after that episode. Yeah, I guess before we go, uh, do you want to talk about the uh, the letterbox reviews? We each pick a letterbox review that we liked from. Oh yes, this yeah, movie. yeah, I almost forgot. Yeah. So my pick for that is uh, from a guy named Patrick Willems. He is a YouTuber who uh, I enjoy his stuff. If you want to go check him out on YouTube, that's Willems W I L L E M S, Patrick Willems, and his review is just a very <laughs> quick two sentence review for this, and it just says a Christopher Nolan movie where people swear and have sex. This is madness. What? Uh, get out of here which was my (laughs) thoughts too it's got probably the most f-bombs out of any christopher nolan movie definitely the most there is no sex scene in it but it is the most implication of sex and the most kissing i think i've seen in a christopher (laughs) nolan movie so right right 
Uh, but no, I thought that one was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I actually did have that thought on my viewing. I was like, oh yeah, this is the one with the with the sex, <laughs> but <laughs> but, he, but only the implication of sex, not the actual. You know, it's not even shown. Uh, <laughs> uh, my review, as I was going through some of them, I was thinking about you know how I might rate the movie and was shooting a little high, and I thought, eh, like maybe I should go down and see what everyone else was saying about it, and. I came across this one from Melissa Tamenga, and she started out with a quote from a guy named Bill Forsyth, who wrote the story of film and Odyssey. And the quote kind of just talks about there's it says there's no such thing as an empirical story. It's just what happens to people. And the quote was saying things like, I think a lot of filmmakers think a story is the purpose of the film instead of the characters and the actors bringing out the characterizations and making it about people instead of just about the story. So it's a, a several paragraphs long. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the end of it, Melissa says, is that, you know, the story game, the flourishes of style hold some interest, but I think I'd like to feel more thoroughly that the story isn't the main thing that as Forsyth says, story is just what happens to people rather than people being just what happened to the story and her inversion of that people being just what happened to the story. I kind of thought, oh yeah, that's a good point. Like here it's it is a really well-crafted story and the pieces all fit together and it's really enjoyable to see it when it clicks and see like tom jones says it's when the grenade goes the grenades go off <laughs> but in terms of the people that are there that really really made me think yeah they kind of are just there i think like and like you mentioned earlier you know it's <laughs> not something that you'd expect these people that this situation to just arise naturally it's kind of been manufactured to be that way so i really appreciated that perspective not yeah didn't necessarily agree with every single point in her review but that point especially really struck me and i thought it was something really good to to mention so not always going for the comedy letterbox reviews i thought (laughs) (laughs) but yeah do you have anything else you wanted to say jake any anything else we forgot that does it for me. Where can people find us if you want to search for us on social medias? Right. We are at Friends at Dusk Pod on Instagram and at Friends at Dusk on Twitter. As for me, I'm on Instagram at Marshall.doig, on Twitter at MarshallDoig, and on Letterboxd at MDoig. And I am on Instagram and Twitter, both at Jake Harris four and I'm on letterbox at 808 Jake underscore. Please give us a like and subscribe wherever you listen. And if you're on Apple podcasts, please give us a five star rating and review. I hope you feel that way. And you can find the list of our resources in the show notes. Next time we'll be discussing some of the influences on Memento. All right. And that'll do it for us. We'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Bye.